so empty up here without the chords and the musical stands, but it's less of a hazard for someone like me. I suppose that's okay. I won't try to <laughs> be mechanical. Well, good morning. It is great to see everyone here this morning. For those of you I don't know, my name's Deirdre Chance, and I am part of the ministry team here at Twin Cities Church. And Thanks to the invitation of the elders, I get to come a couple times throughout the year and come and preach. Um, it's great to be here, too, because the last two weeks, weekends, last two Sundays, we have been out of town. So, and the time before that, I was in childcare. so it's like, oh, it's so great to be here. <laughs> uh, last weekend, we were actually down at my middle daughter, Tabitha's, graduation from Kansas State. And um, so, right, you hear that, yay, woohoo. Um, yeah, really, woohoo. <laughs> um, when we were at the graduation ceremony, right, there's that commencement speaker, and he was challenging the undergraduates to have a plan, but to also have a plan to fail and another plan and to back, you know, to back that up. And I was, I was listening to this commencement speaker we're in the big basketball coliseum, and you can see all the, the college graduates there. And I was just looking at them and thinking, you know, I'm sure a lot of them have plans. Like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I've graduated now. But I bet more of them are like, I don't know what I'm doing, or I had a plan and it failed. And just that difficulty, right, of not knowing what's going to happen, of thinking you were going to do something and it failed. It didn't work out how you expect it. And that angst and that anxiety. Um, the weekend before that, I was actually, I feel like God keeps showing me that this, this idea. The weekend before that, I was with um, my sister, who many of you have been praying for, and thank you for that. She is um, at an intensive spinal care rehab facility down in Atlanta. She is doing hard work to get off the ventilator. She's currently paralyzed from the armpits down, doing speech therapy and physical therapy and occupational therapy, all this hard work. And, you know, and, and we're praying for her, and we don't know what's going to happen. Every day she's going through this hard work, and she doesn't know what's going to happen. Right? And, and it's hard enough to go through any trial, but when on top of it we have that layer of not knowing what's going to happen, how that just compounds the difficulty and the anxiety we feel. And that's really what we see in the text today that Andrew read. We see God's people waiting and struggling as they wait. Moses goes up into this cloud and he's gone. They don't know what's going to happen. Throughout the book of Exodus, Moses has been their go-between between God and the people, right? Like when Moses comes back from his experiences and returns to the Israelites in Egypt, he's the one who tells them, God has heard your groaning and your crying and he's going to deliver you. When all those plagues happen, they're often, they either come through Moses or they're announced through Moses. Uh, when, the, when the most tragic plague happens, the death of the firstborn, it's Moses who tells the people, God said, you've got to paint the blood of the lamb on your doorframe so that the angel of death will pass over. Um, when they finally get delivered out of Egypt 
and they're at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has changed his mind, and he's behind them with the army. They're facing the Red Sea. The army's behind them. It's Moses who God uses to right, lift up his hands with the staff and part the Red Seas. It's like again and again we see Moses being the go-between, the intercessor, the mediator for God and his people. And then in the couple narratives right before the one that um, Andrew just read, like we see it explicitly where the people tell Moses, no, we don't want to meet with God directly. You be our go-between. If you remember that scene, George and Lawrence preached on it. It was when they're at the uh, base of Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments are given and the people are supposed to come out and meet God and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a thick cloud and there's a trumpet blast that's getting louder and louder. And the people are like, no, we don't, we don't want to meet with God directly. Moses, you be our intercessor. You be our mediator. Um, so again, overall, we see Moses has consistently represented Israel's connection to Yahweh. Um, and there's one commentator who I, I really appreciated his, or one scholar who um, I appreciate his commentary on this whole scene. Like normally, Moses would talk to a cloud. That's how it would go and would communicate with God for the people. But in this scene, the people are at the base of Mount Sinai and God has descended on a thick cloud and it's like Moses goes up. He disappears into the cloud and it says that, this is in Exodus 24, it says that Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Whether that's literal or symbolic, that amount of time is supposed to communicate to the reader like it's this seemingly unendless amount of time. The people feel like we don't know when he is coming back, if he's ever coming back, and they panic and they build a replacement. They build a replacement for God and they worship it, the golden calf. And if you also remember um, around that, there's two narratives about the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19 and 24. Um, but the people had made a covenantal promise to obey those Ten Commandments. And here, in making the golden calf and worshiping it, they've broken the first two commandments. They've broken that covenantal promise. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and you shall make no graven images. Mike Wilkerson in his book, Redemption Book, um, he makes the point that it's like a wedding scene, this picture, right? God says the requirements and the people all say, we will, you know, I do. It's this beautiful wedding scene and the people break that covenantal promise they just made with God. And really that worship of the golden calf was in essence Israel denying God as their source of deliverance and hope. Again and again through the book of Exodus, we see God saying to the Israelites, I am the Lord your God who will or who has delivered you from slavery in Egypt. Again and again, Exodus 3, Exodus 6, Exodus 10, Exodus 13, Exodus 20, again and again, it's, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And what do the people say when they make this golden calf? They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
in making this golden calf, they have denied God as their source of deliverance and hope. In many ways, the worship of the golden calf was Israel's most rebellious act. But in other ways, it was just their most recent rebellious act. Again, from the time they've been delivered from slavery to at the base of Mount Sinai, they've grumbled, they've doubted, and they've rebelled against God. Right? When, when Pharaoh is pursuing them, and they've got the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh behind them, they, bl- they grumble, they complain, and they turn and they blame and attack Moses. They literally say, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the wilderness to die? Like, they just got delivered out of slavery by the angel of death killing all the firstborn who ever didn't paint the blood on their doorframe. And instead of just crying out to God, they blame and they complain. They say, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Then after God through Moses parts the Red Sea and they cross through and the water is bitter, they say again, um, you know, they, they complain and they grumble and they're bitter at God for bringing them out. Then the next narrative after that, they're complaining about their living conditions, their travel conditions, and they say again, it would have been better if we died in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And as a reader, you're kind of thinking, when, when did you sit by the meat pots and have bread to the full in Egypt? Because I kind of remember you being enslaved and harsh treatment and them killing your infant sons. Here they are romanticizing their miserable past. And they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're rebelling against God. And so as a reader, we shouldn't, we should be saddened and disappointed, but not really surprised. Again and again, God has showed up and delivered and been the source of hope for Israel. And again and again, they've grumbled and they've complained and they've forgotten and they have rebelled. God's people have turned aside. They couldn't wait. They couldn't persevere in patience. Whatever it is that we need to like hold the course and stand firm and stand strong during times of uncertainty unknown, they didn't have. They lacked it. They lacked faith and they lost control, right? That last line where it says that they ate and drank and rose up to play, it's really describing a wild party scene. That verb to play in Hebrew has a sexual connotation to it. Um, It's just this wild orgy scene in the desert. The discomfort and distress of waiting was just too much, and they looked for a relief, some release somewhere, and they made the golden calf because it was too much for them. We as the reader should have no doubt the golden calf was a replacement for God's presence. So why is it so hard for us to wait? Why is it so hard for us to not know, 
to be unclear? Why does it seem that waiting brings out all these weaknesses in us? Why does waiting cause us angst and anxiety? You know, again, like back to those college graduates, you know, even if I think before that, you know, being a young person, not quite an adult, like it can just be hard waiting. Like maybe you're, it's difficult to wait because you want to be fully on your own or you don't know what's going to come next. And right, it's not unusual for young people to have a lot of angst and depression and anxiety. And then even as you become a fully independent adult, um, for many, if you're a single adult and you desire to be married, that waiting can be difficult. The unknown part of it creates more angst and fear and anxiety. And then even if you get married, it's like if you're experiencing infertility, that can be difficult because you don't know and you're wondering and your future is unclear. You know, it seems like any trial or challenge, financial stress, Am I going to get out of this? Is this going to work out? Whatever challenge we're in, the not knowing, the waiting, the being unclear, just compounds the difficulties. And it's not just an individual thing either, right? It's like our whole society. We don't like to wait. We spend a lot of money on conveniences so that we don't have to wait. It's like, how in the world are we going to learn how to have that perseverance and patience when it seems like nobody around us knows how to wait? And right, that's kind of how the picture is in the scriptures too. Like, nobody in Israel was waiting. They all gave up. And we... You know, in that, we don't like to wait. We all do it. And again, we seek those releases. We seek a relief from that discomfort of waiting. It'll come out sideways out of us, just like the Israelites. We'll find something to give us a release and a re relief from the discomfort of waiting. Mike Wilkerson, again, in his book, Redemption, um, points out that it seems also kind of a common human experience in periods of waiting and uncertainty to think something like, well, if God really cared about me, if he was really for me, he would have acted by now. But he hasn't, so I better take care of myself and I better take matters into my own hands. Having faith that God is present when we're uncertain and when we're waiting is a fight. It's a battle. It doesn't come easy. It's hard to remember and look at our past and be like, okay, God was here, and God was here, and God was here, so he will be here for me now. Like, that takes effort. That takes faith. And that takes, like, a fighting. It's a fight. And it reminded me of Jacob, right, who we studied earlier in Genesis in the Pentateuch. If you remember Jacob, Jacob was characterized by just being a manipulator. He manipulated and deceived to get the upper hand through most of his life. Uh, sometimes he was on the receiving end of it. Most of the time he was on the giving end of it. But that is what characterized um, Jacob. And then in that pivotal night where he's going to go back and meet his oldest brother, Esau, who the last time he saw him wanted to murder him because Jacob had tricked him out of his birthright. On that pivotal night when he's on his way back home to have to kind of face 
his consequences, face what he has done. On that pivotal night, he meets God and he wrestles with him. And the text communicates to us that he would not let go of God, even if God hurt him, until God blessed him. You know, and I think in many ways, we want to be like Jacob. We want to hang on to God, wrestle with God during the times of waiting, even if it hurts us. We want to not let go of God until he blesses us. But in another sense, God took that narrative and flipped it when he sent Jesus Christ to this earth to come in the flesh. Jesus has wrestled and contended for you and for all of humanity. He has refused to let go of the Father's will and was willing to become your sin, our sin, the curse of sin for all humanity on the cross so that we could be blessed. We are able to take hold of God because God the Son has taken hold of us. I like the way that Philippians 3.12 in the NAS says it. It says, I press on to take hold of that for which I was taken hold of by Christ. We can take hold of God because he has taken hold of us, of us and has not let go and has blessed us. Moses was Israel's mediator, go-between, between God and Israel. But he was really a failure. He was really a failure as a mediator. There's one scholar, Kevin Chen, if you know John Salehammer, he was a student of his, he wrote in his book, Messianic Vision of the Pentateuch, that really Moses is portrayed throughout, well, I was going to say the Pentateuch, I guess Exodus through Deuteronomy, um, as an unsuccessful intermediary between the people and God, right? He's never really able to lead them to true, lasting faith. He's never really able for a long time to connect and keep that relationship going for God and the people. And that's because Moses was just a man, right? In this text, it says, as for this man, Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. Moses was just a man. He couldn't be a sufficient mediator and intercessor for God and humanity. But it's different for us as Christians, right? We don't have Moses as our mediator. We have Jesus Christ as our mediator and intercessor and his indwelling spirit. Everything about Israel's identity was best understood in terms of God's presence. God was choosing them. Again and again, he was choosing to dwell with them, even though their flaws and failures are certainly not hidden. Everything about them was supposed to be best understood in God's presence, but we, we never see it fully materializing or lasting long in the Pentateuch. But as that Old Testament continues to unfold, we see God continuing on with his original plan from Genesis 3.15 to send the promised offspring, who would be wounded, 
but would crush the head of the serpent, would crush the curse of sin. And that with that promised offspring, he would bring a new covenant, right? The prophets start to talk about this, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that that offspring would bring a new covenant where our hearts are changed by God's indwelling spirit. We have God's presence that seals us and binds us to him and binds us to one another. Everything about our identity is also best understood in God's presence. In Christ, our salvation, our identity, your future, your healing, your plans are best understood not in knowing all the nuts and bolts and having everything explained to you and not having to wait. Everything about your identity and your future and your plans are best understood in knowing God is present with you. Um, Over the past week as I was preparing for this sermon and we were traveling with family and I asked... um, some people in my house church too, I did a little informal research and I would ask, why is it so hard to wait? Like I was trying to get to like, what is it that's in us that makes it so hard to wait? I don't know that we quite got there, but we certainly were able to identify what's difficult when we were waiting. Um, One person I was talking to said, you know, it's, I feel like God didn't consider me when I'm waiting. I feel like he just kind of moved on past me. Um, others that I talked to um, said, like, you just feel so out of control in times of waiting. And as I was reflecting on those responses, I realized, you know, as if we can deepen in the fear and awe of the Lord, it moves us away from that angst and that anxiety and that discomfort and that out of control, losing control, we feel in waiting. And right, isn't that what we've been learning? Isn't that the major theme of the Pentateuch that we've been learning? The awe and fear of the Lord. And so I think, you know, we kind of got to ask ourselves, like, well, how do I, how do I deepen? How do I live by that fear of God? Like, not just a token nod, like, oh, fear of God. But how is that part of who I am? How how is that a fabric of my being? How do I do that? And I think it, it starts, you've got to have the foundation of knowing you have Christ as your mediator and intercessor. Like, we can draw near to the presence of God because he has drawn near to us through Christ and been our perfect, sufficient mediator and intercessor. And then after we're firm in that, like, okay, this is what Christ has done for me. This is what God has done for us. Then I think there's two things to reflect on, to try to apply. Um, when um, When we live in the fear of the Lord, when we're characterized by that, that should lead us to casting off sin, right? If we are looking at awe and reverence of God, a natural overflow of that should be casting off sin, confessing our sins, 
um, back to that Exodus 19 scene where the people are brought out to meet God and they're fearful, in a bad way fearful, like trembling and paralyzed. And Moses admonishes them to fear God, to draw near to God because they fear God. He says, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. If we're really growing and appreciating how powerful, how awesome, how amazing God is, it should lead us to just that regular practice of confession and surrendering. Surrendering our our selfish desires, surrendering our expectations that things and people should be revolving around us, but we're not God, so I don't know why we think things should be revolving around us, but we do that, so we need to just be honest and surrender it. That sin that, um, you know, because I feel discomfort, I'm going to start blaming others. As we draw near to God, um, we can just confess that and be like, you are God, <laughs> I am not, right? Confession is just agreeing with God that this is wrong. Um, and ask for forgiveness. Um, again, because we know Christ has mediated for us, we can come and we can confess without condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. How many times does the New Testament encourage us to confess our sins to one another? Like, we can be a different community as the the fear of the Lord and understanding Christ's intercession um, is part of who we are. Rather than blaming, rather than expecting people to revolve around us, rather than making our demands, rather than expecting God to answer to us and explain everything, right, we can have humility We can let God be God, and we can worship, and we can adore him. And that kind of leads into the next part. And that would be, not only should the fear of God lead us to just that regular confession, not condemned, this is just something I live by, I confess to others rather than blaming them, I make amends. The fear of the Lord should also draw us close to him. Because we're in awe and we're in reverence of him and we have Christ to intercede for us. That awe and reverence and confidence that God is in control, that fear of God leads us to quit striving, to quit micromanaging, and to rest and abide in his presence. A verse that kept coming to my mind was 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 that says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and they died that they should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The way we overcome that angst and that anxiety and that lack of control and stress and waiting is that we quit living for ourselves, but we live for him who for our sake died and was raised. And living for him also means that we live for one another. It's not just an individual thing again. It's something we do together in community. And it was interesting to me that this verse kept coming to mind, like 
this love of Christ control you rather than angst and anxiety during times of waiting, right? It seems like too often in times of waiting, we let other things control us rather than the love of Christ. But a couple verses before that, so again, that was 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. In verse 11, it says, so just four verses before that, it says, knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord includes the love of Christ, of being drawn closer to God through Christ. And so the fear of the Lord is what catalyzes us to let the love of Christ control us. So let me pray for us, close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we do, we are indeed in awe and reverence and in fear of you, Lord. Our minds are finite, and yet, Lord, you reveal to us your amazing glory through your creation, through your gracious love that you displayed to us, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we draw near to you knowing that it is nothing in our own ability, yet by your graciousness and by your faithfulness, we have this amazing privilege to draw near to the throne of grace to know that you are in control of all things and we don't have to strive. Our striving isn't gonna change anything. We can rest in you and we can be confident in you. We ask that you would strengthen us all in the innermost being by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would move out of letting waiting and angst and anxiety control us and allow the love of Christ and deepening in the fear and awe and love of you. And we pray all these things through our intercessor, our mediator, our advocate, Jesus Christ. Amen.